What's up, everybody, and welcome to Decision Time. I'm Misha, and I speak with product and business leaders about their unique approach to decision-making. Each episode features a new leader where we discuss a recent product launch, we'll learn about their business, the unknowns leading up to the launch, and how they manage their time to ensure success. Let's go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Decision Time. We have a very special guest today, Bill Wade, Chief Product and Technology Officer at FICO. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. So let's kick things off. Uh, personally, I'd love to learn a little bit more about FICO as an entity, as a product organization, as a company. Fill us in just a little bit about your remit, your team, what kind of stuff you guys are working on. And for those of you not familiar with FICO, other than the score they get in their credit report, tell us a little bit more. Sure. And it is not uncommon for um, people to associate the name FICO with the credit score, um, with good reason. It is actually um, half of our business, um, it, and it has uh, been in, in the market for a very long time. So from a brand, that's what most people think of. But we also have a software business. Um, the software business is, is multi-industry. Um, our predominant industry is in financial services. Um, we offer at the core of our software offering a platform, and this platform um, is in a, a, a decision intelligence platform. It combines um, decisions, analytics, um, all forms of it, uh, predictive, um, machine learning, uh, all forms of AI. Um, we also combine uh, simulation and optimization technology all to drive business decisions and predominantly business decisions in automation. Um, we do decision support as well, um, but most of what we implement is in automated decisions. Um, our clients use um, the FICO platform across the full life cycle, uh, mostly in their uh, consumer engagement. Um, and typical use cases are, they range. There's a large number of them, but um, probably the more popular use cases um, and maybe grounded to, you know, anchor what we do. Fraud happens to be one of the biggest use cases. Um, if you've ever gotten a text message, we've sent, seen unusual activity on your credit card. Is this a transaction that you actually made? That would most likely be us. 90% chance it's, it's FICO running in the background, making a real-time decision identifying potential fraud and getting, and also sending you the text message to confirm if that was you or not. Uh, we also do onboarding. If you've ever gotten a loan, um, it was a good chance it was probably FICO technology in the background. Um, and then we do um, more um, less known sort of areas like customer servicing. Um, you go to an ATM, you withdraw $40, you get 20 and you want to, you know, get it resolved. We might be sitting in the background of that. So, there's a wide number of use cases, but all of it is actually operating the business and making decisions. Interesting. And tell us a little bit more about your team. Uh, how big is the org? Uh, it's about 2,700 people uh, in the organization. Um, it comprises product uh, engineering, um, our operations, which is our cloud operations. Um, it also includes our security, or CISO, uh, and it also includes the... Uh, delivery arm, uh, the professional services, pretty much everything tech here in the FICO software business. And I was going to ask you for an example of a use case. You gave us one. I appreciate that. And, and you said the bulk of the business, it does seem to be from a vertical perspective on the financial services side. Yeah. From a revenue perspective and a number of clients, um, 
probably a you know high 70% of our business comes from financial services. Um, but we have a, a number of interesting use cases in non-financial services. What do you consider to be the core competency? Is it purely operational and analytical modeling expertise that you guys have and, and you deploy that to any type of decision? Or I would have thought of it more related to financial services, but it seems more horizontal than that. Yeah, there's, so there's underlying technology, which is actually common across all of the decisions that we, we make. Um, and there's repeating patterns of it. But you need to put that all in the context of operating a business. So we don't, we do use tech. We have lots of technology. We have pat, we have 120 some odd patents on our technology. Uh, we've been doing this for since the eighties. So it's, it's long running business for us. Um, but we focus predominantly on the operationalization of analytics and decisioning and decision-making whether or not that's real-time decisioning or decision support. Um, but we do it from the perspective of the business person. So our predominant user and our predominant buyer is a business person, not a technology person. Now that doesn't mean that data scientists or operational research or analysts get involved in using our technology or even deciding on to use our technology and how to use it. Um, but the predominant target and where we uh, go to market with features is around enabling the business to have transparency, insight, understanding, and action those decisions quickly. And we have uh, material uh, impact to business outcomes. We literally embody and enable a business person to um, understand, um, investigate, measure outcomes, and continually iterate and improve how they make decisions using basic, basically an analytic technique, but it's, it's, um, it's opaque to the user. They have no idea what's going on in the background. It's all the tooling and management that, that is necessary to enable that. So maybe this is a good bridge to the first question, uh, which is related to prioritization. If you have, uh, let's say, a set of use cases that you're considering, one squarely in financial services and one maybe empowering decision-making in a completely different industry, it's called healthcare. How do you decide if you have limited resources, which of those two to pursue? In order to answer that question, we first have to um, have to cover off how we actually approach our go-to-market and enable it. We start first and foremost with capabilities. Regardless of the use case, the core capabilities that we use are the same. So our operationalized machine learning, our ability to make decisions, um, our simulation and our optimization, they're all the same. So when we look across our user base and our use cases, when we prioritize what to do at the capability level, we target specifically to all of the use cases and enabling as many of them as possible at once. That said, there are a number of solutions that we go to market with, like our originations, our fraud, our customer engagement, and our protection. And each one of those actually has uh, a measurable set of business. That measurable set of business actually directs where we invest in those solution areas. But those solution areas are also dependent on those capabilities. So we get requirements from customers directly on their use cases, and we get requirements from those solution areas. We line them up. And we 
prioritize both the solutions and to the end customer. When you say you prioritize both the solution and the end customer, I assume the end customer is something akin to the size of their existing business with you. Is that what you mean? Not really. We don't have to make decisions based on the size of the customer. We actually make it on the number of demands. So across all of the use cases that our customers implement and our customers actually decide which use cases they're interested in. In many cases, we don't even know all of the use cases that they decided or that they've actually gone and implemented to. What we usually get is actually requests specifically for features or functionality mm -hmm. in these capabilities. And so we're actually more focused on what, where is the number of those requests and how many of those requests we can actually normalize into one feature or one piece of functionality that we release that covers multiple requests. So right. there's a bit of a translation between what we specifically get asked and what we actually package as a product. It's somewhat of a unique um, skill set we have since we've been doing this for so many years. Um, we actually have the ability to sort of look beyond the request, look at the underpinnings of the request, and then address the features of the capabilities, the core capabilities against those features. So frequently we'll get you know use case requests or solution requests, and we'll actually be able to knock out dozens of them all with one feature at a time. And it's not really driven by revenue from the client. It's driven by the number of demands how easy it is to get that out and what the potential future value of that would be to other clients by actually taking it to market. And how do you manage that? How do you ensure that, uh, I don't know exactly how many product owners there are, that they're all thinking about it the way you just described so that you can figure out where the points of commonality are? Yeah, so we have, um, we have a separation into three categories. The last category is solution. Um, that's the that's the one where the actual use case is something we take to market or offer on our platform. And we have a lot of domain expertise in those solution areas. Underneath that sits what we call market leading capabilities, which actually constitutes the core set of capabilities that are, there are differentiated value. They're the things that we do uniquely well. And underneath that, there's a core set of enabling capabilities. And those are things that are necessary on our platform to accomplish all of what we do. But they're not things we go to the market and say, hey, buy this from us. That comes with our platform. And so when we intake, if it's from a solution perspective, we actually translate the, the use requirement into, they do, into the actual market leading requirement or the enabling requirement. And it goes to a particular team. Those get aggregated in those separate teams. And then those separate teams triage them. So... If, for example, it might come back and say, I'm looking for a unique way of managing decision tables. It might come from the customer directly. It might come from the solution group. But these requests come in about making a certain type of decision in a decision table. And that group has a lot of experience with it. So they'll look at uh, user experience. They'll look at functional speeds. Uh, non, I'm sorry, features and non-functional such as speeds and, and latency and what the requirements are around uh, the use of that. And then they'll translate that into what we call a solution decomposition process, which actually involves engineering at that time. And the engineering and the product teams work together to figure out what's the best way to solve the multiple requirements that are coming in from multiple directions. And then if there's a way to do that, it gets identified as a feature. And then that feature gets prioritized in the backlog. Um, so we, we look at just about everything that comes in and we do this uh, initial, we call t-shirt sizing or, or part of the solution decomposition is an estimate of the effort that feeds them back into, okay, we can't do everything. What can we do? What are the biggest demands? 
but the best way to inform that is it might be a simple thing, which we could fit into a backlog item really very quickly, but you got to have some level of understanding. The benefit of that is that the engineers actually begin to actually see firsthand what the end users are looking to do. There's no better way of getting a better product outcome than actually having the engineers understand the, the application of what they're building in the end. Yeah, absolutely. Getting engineers involved in understanding the business use cases is paramount for sure. And it sounds like there's quite a bit of coordination required here. Is there anything that you use to facilitate it? Or is it really just the process that you have in place where the teams meet on some cadence weekly, biweekly? Or are you actually using any tooling where anybody can come in and see here's the list of feature uh, requests that are coming in? Here are the ones that look like they have some commonality and you can start to start seeing some patterns. How do you do it? Yeah, we have we have we actually have a number of tooling elements that sit behind it. But <clears throat> we start first with um, individual roadmaps. Um, the roadmap management um, is done by the product team, and then the product leaders across those three groups do portfolio level um, assessment and prioritization, which actually identifies additional features and and or linkage between them <clears throat> at the very top level. We keep track of all the intake requests. They can come from clients, our delivery team, our sales team, solutions team. They come from a lot of different sources. We keep track of all of them. And then we bucket them. We bucket them into um, like to do now, put it on the back burner. We'll look at it later to disqualified. We're not, we're not in that business or we're not look, interested in, in looking at that. Um, but we keep it all <clears throat> just in case we need to go back and look at the original use cases when we get into an engineering effort. That's sort of the top level. The next level below that is, is that we go through, um, we are agile, so we go through a, an iterative process. And whenever we come up from, um, from a scrum, scrum period, we actually look at that backlog from a, from a several group perspective. We have an architectural team and then we have engineering leads. Their job is to look at that backlog and do the solution decomposition and figure out where and how it fits at the top level. <clears throat> Once that's actually identified, then the engineering team will go look at it and do the assessment. And these are not big tasks. They're relatively small and they happen all the time. Like it's constantly. Um, that then feeds back into the product from a product prioritization perspective and aligns to our business uh, and the business needs that we have. We frequently, if it's a major sort of um, investment, we'll actually take it back to the business with the with the business case the the number of clients impacted what the potential value of it is and then they make the decision on trade-off priorities on bigger tickets if it's a regular course of product we just fit it in when we can how we can there's a number of sort of rankings that we we apply to that but we look at pretty much everything in that backlog um, this is why we have no shortage of feature requests that we know are linked to business outcome what is the volume of requests that in a given period that you're dealing with? It's in the hundreds and high hundreds. Um, I, I wouldn't say we're in the thousands, but if you take into account things like um, security tickets or uh, third-party product upgrades, open source versioning, et cetera, then you actually are in the thousands. It, it, it gets quite high. We, we have, again, a prioritization mechanism behind that, right? But, but those all become intake. The intake, though, at the at the user level, the where the where the requests come from, it's usually in the high hundreds. And by the time those get bucketed into common themes, it 
what does that usually yield? Something in, in the tens? Yeah, in the tens, probably mid to high tens um, in number of requests. You got to then divide that by the number of product teams. And it, it comes down into the, you know, mid, mid single digits sort of per team. And does the prioritization then happen at that level or does it happen at the hundreds level? So we use a bottom up approach for um, estimations. And then that actually, each one of the product owners in that category make recommendations against the full list. The full list is still reviewed. We tag specific customers associated with that. Um, so that if there's a high, high value customer that might end up pushing it higher to the top. Um, and then there's three levels of review that occur on a monthly basis. Um, where those things are, are looked at and reviewed. It sounds monumental, but it's not. If you're familiar with agile processes, you're, you're talking about incrementals. You're not talking about like reviewing all of them at once because a lot of them have been there and they're being worked. So it's more about what's new, what's coming off, and what are the trade-offs within that window uh, of that particular sprint that, or set of sprints that we're working on. It's actually quite natural and simple. Once you get into the groove, um, at the outset, it's kind of monumental, but once you're doing it on a regular basis, it, it actually is very efficient. Um, we can cover 10 or 15 minutes at a time to go through them and make, make decisions. Well, I'm glad you mentioned efficiency. It gives me a nice bridge to the next question, which is how you spend your time and where your time goes. Clearly, some of it goes to this type of work with your teams. Where else, if you had to sort of pick a, an average week, where do you get pulled? You probably get different answers on that based upon different styles of management. Um, I'm I'm generally a very hands-on person. Uh, I am an engineer, so uh, I spent almost two decades in the go-to-market. But I started as an engineer, and I'm in the product and the engineering organization and the operation of that. So details do matter, um, and. Sometimes understanding that gives you a better perspective on how to steer and guide the business. Um, so I, I do spend, you know, a good twenty percent of my time actually going through these roadmaps on a, on a regular basis. Um, it is not at the top of my list of priorities. If I miss one of them in a given month, it's not the end of the world. I have a team, teams seasoned and experienced, and they. They know generally what to do, which sort of brings me to the primary thing that I'm focused on is making sure that the vision and the strategy is clear and it's aligned with the business. And I spend a fair bit of time dealing with that alignment, right? Because it is, it's dynamic, it changes. Um, so as a result, you know, I spend another good 20% of my time actually dealing with clients and or things like this, this call, <laughs> where um, staying in touch with the industry is very important. So about 20% on vision and strategy, another 20% on sort of staying connected, 20% uh, of that actually being in the business. There's another about 25% of it, which is actually uh, just time with staff, staff meetings, one-on-one -on -one calls, making sure that operationally we're moving. Um, and then um, it, it varies on a week-to-week -week basis where time is spent, but there's you know, finance reviews, budget reviews that need to occur. Planning sessions will kick off for you know next year and six months ahead of nine months ahead of time. So there's there's time slices there. There's 
detailed reviews within the teams that we spend time on just making sure we get to the bottom of the of the of the uh the mix so you know the, the balance of my time there are roughly 30 to 40 percent it it changes dynamically week to week it's not the same the only things that are repetitive over a given week are those sort of core areas that i've already touched on and i'm curious specifically about vision strategy what's difficult about that how, how does that time manifest itself Probably the biggest part of that is actually making sure that it's clear, communicated, and understood. The last part is the key part, understood. The manifestation of understanding actually comes out in the execution. So if the execution is misaligned to the strategy, that means that there's a disconnect in understanding of that strategy. And you need to make sure that the people making the decisions there understand and can weigh off on an alignment to that strategy. So very frequently making the strategy concrete in examples helps cement the strategy. And so I do spend a fair bit of time on that, but there's another element to the strategy, which is not necessarily a change the strategy, but actually aligning the priorities to that strategy. And so there's a crossover at that point in time, right? Where you have to bring the strategy back into the decision-making process so that you're aligned and you anchor it because it's very easy to get caught up in the details and, and miss the opportunity to ensure that the execution stays on track. And is there anything that you would say that would make your job easier in that department? It's always difficult to tie back the tactical and the execution to anchor points in the strategy. We have an approach that we attempt to do that to keep it aligned, which is we start with the overall business objectives that we have on a fiscal year basis. They, they change slightly year to year, but they don't change dramatically. Um, as your business evolves, of course, some of your strategy elements will, will change. Then, it, then it, there's an organizational level of KPIs or OKRs that you want to achieve that feed, and they need to feed. They need to be connected directly back. And then within each of the departments, there's, of course, the same set of OKRs or KPIs that need to tied to the, the organizational model. And so if you can connect all of those down, you can go all the way down to an individual scrum team and their objectives and OKRs for the next year that are linked all the way back up so that they know exactly what they're contributing towards. And we measure these. We actually um, have monthly updates on how we're doing on those OKRs as a roll up. That's probably the most challenging part and it's not the tracking. It's A, making sure that there's connectivity and B, making sure that each team that has their OKs understands how they are connected back up. That sense of belonging and contribution is not always transparent. Um, I try to reinforce that by you know individual wins, like we just won a particular contract and then I'll reinforce with the team. All of these teams are contributing to that outcome. Like your your OKRs made that possible in the following way. Um, that pull back down through is equally important. It's not just a management structure. It's also empowering and enabling employees to know what their contributions are to the outcome of the business because it's a great motivator. If they understand that they were the, the their actions contributed directly to this outcome, it gets them invested. It gets them gives them ownership, and ownership gives them you know, a sense of purpose, but it also uh, results in higher quality and better product. Yeah, agreed. I, I think it's super important as well, because 
the decisions that product teams make, they drive the rest of the business. It's how engineers spend their time. It's how sales spends their time. It's what the marketing team works on. So it's a lean organization typically compared to other functions uh, at a company, but the decisions that they make allocate everyone else's time. And so keeping that front and center and reminding people that even the the tiniest decision made has a huge impact. Well, Bill, thank you very much for joining. I really enjoyed learning a little bit more about FICO, seeing it now as a decision intelligence company. And I appreciate your perspective on both prioritization and time management. I look forward to maybe having you on the pod at another time in the future. That'd be great. I look forward to it myself. Thanks for listening. If you're a product leader and want to be featured on my podcast, send me an email. It's Misha at onchassis.com. You can also find the address in the pod description. All right. Till next time.